0: Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gabby Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Lee davies Hello. So this week we watched the racy and hilarious 1933 three-way romantic comedy Design for Living about two men and a woman who attempt to live together in a so-called gentleman's agreement. Adapted from a play by Noel Coward, it was directed by romantic comedy filmmaker Ernst Lubitsch and prolific screenwriter Ben Hecht.
1: So this is a Patreon request from Jen, and we would like to say thank you very much to Jen for this request, because it was so much fun to watch this movie. Friend of the show, Charlotte Geeter, watched this a month or two ago and immediately was like, Morgan, you must watch this film. And I was like, it looks great. I should watch it. And then just kept getting distracted by things. And so finally, I was forced to watch it. And needless to say, Charlotte was right. I loved it. It was a delight.
0: It's incredible. Every time I know someone who watches this, they're like, this is essential viewing. It's interesting because this movie, it stars people who were like very famous at the time. The one name that everyone will now recognize is Gary Cooper. And obviously Noel Coward's a household name, but it's now kind of not really seen as one of the really big pre-code famous movies. And if you kind of look at reviews from the time, they're like, well, it's fine, but it's nothing on the play. But when you watch it now, you're like, oh my God, this is a masterpiece. It's hilarious. Like it's this amazing dynamic. It's very queer. It's obviously much more sexual than a lot of films shortly after this because the code came in and started censoring everything. But yeah, it's just a tremendously funny movie with amazing lead actors.
1: It made me very curious about the play because I am inclined to believe the reviews that it, I mean, it clearly is very different from the play. It was almost totally rewritten by... The playwright Ben Hecht, who was one of the most famous playwrights in America, if not the most famous playwright in America. People will perhaps know him as the playwright who wrote The Front Page, which he then adapted to be His Girl Friday. So he started out as a playwright on Broadway and then I think continued that, although I'm not entirely sure. But he then transitioned to Hollywood and became like one of the highest paid screenwriters in Hollywood in the 30s and 40s. He got brought in on this and... Totally redid it because the feeling was that the original play was not going to be acceptable even in the pre-code era. And I think my suspicion, although I didn't actually read this anywhere, but I just feel like it probably was too British and they were like, we don't know. This is not going to work. Like America's not going to understand what's going on here.
0: Although ironically, the play was not staged in England. It was censored until 1939. It was too racy for England. So it debuted in New York
1: but i completely believe that the play as a piece of writing is superior to the film but one of the essays about this on the criterion collections website which we will link to describes the film as sort of immediately announcing itself as a film rather than as a play and i think that that's the way to think about it, like it's not a play, it's a movie. Tons of stuff from this era was adapted. Tons of movies were adapted from plays, which we've talked about before. But I think you don't have any sense with this one of any awkwardness of that transition. No, I mean, it doesn't
0: look like a play.
1: <laughs> or even feel like that. Like My favorite movie from the 30s is Holiday with Cary Grant. And Katherine Hepburn. And that movie doesn't feel like an awkward translation of a play at all. I think it's perfect, but it pretty much all takes place in the same house. And it takes place on like three separate days, mostly. It's like three acts, right? And so it translates perfectly, but looking at it, you're like, oh, I can understand how this started out as a play, even if it works really well as a movie. Whereas this one, it's just like, nope, this is a great romantic comedy. I guess it was a play first, but like it wouldn't occur to you necessarily. And sadly, we have not seen the play, so we can't actually talk about that. But um, it's, I think, it's like a work of really creative adaptation, because they're basically just taking the bones of the story and doing something else with it. That really interests me. And then how it's interacting with other romantic films at the time. Like, it's more about that than about the stage, I think. Yeah. And uh, it's like, very horny. (laughs) <laughs> and like more candid about sex than basically any other film from this era that I've seen, which is saying a lot. Yeah. I mean, specifically the fact that they refer to sex with the word sex. I was like, I don't think I've seen this before. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of crazy stuff happening in those pre-code movies, but this one is more explicit about it than I can recall having seen. And in seen. a really light way, because... I mean, I guess we should give like a little intro
0: to what the code is. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be fully aware, but there was this period shortly after talkies came in, movies that weren't silent in like the very late twenties. Talkies started coming in in like 1929, 1930, and very quickly became all that was being made. And movies were really developing very fast and also were becoming very adults. So there were a lot of very adult crime drama movies like Scarface and stuff like that. There were a lot of very sexy movies. Women made up the majority of the film-going audience. There were a lot of movies which feel very proto-feminist. There were a lot of movies that kind of heroized gold digger characters. And there were a lot of movies that were basically just like intentionally racy. So stuff like King Kong and Frankenstein and stuff like that. And um, in this period between 1930 and 1934... That was like what is now known as the pre-code era because around 1934 the production code came in which was a very strict set of censorship rules that kind of carried over for the next few decades in various forms. And they banned everything. You know, this is the reason why you watch you watch a movie from like 1950 and it just seems unbelievably clean. Like at different times, there were different filmmakers who were finding ways to get around this through innuendo. But there was like this hugely stark difference between watching a movie like this, which came out in 1933, and then watching a movie by the same director, Ernst de like three or four years later. It would just clearly be very different. And in this, you literally have a relationship, which is explicitly a thruple and it's not kind of moralizing and it's very fun but also like straightforwardly adult
1: okay so number one i want to say that the fact that the examples of films that you used to describe the racy pre-code era being king kong and frankenstein is very amusing to me
0: (laughs) i mean the may west movies are more racy those are just a bunch of movies about like may west fucking people (laughs)
1: Yes. But, you know, King Kong has people being dismembered. Yeah, that's more, I would say, violent. Yes. Um, but The relationship between the pre-code and the code era movies, I think, is really interesting, especially when you have a director like Lubitsch who is working across the barrier between them. I have seen, I think, more code era movies than you, and you have seen more pre-code eras than I. So... You tend to be more negative on the Code-era films than I do. I mean, obviously, censorship is bad. Like, I'm not advocating for censorship. And the stuff that is really pernicious about the Code has to do with race. Like, they also obviously ban any... Sort of official signs of homosexuality, but that wouldn't have happened even if the code hadn't existed. Like Society was not in a place where that was going to be going on on screen, so it's less relevant. Have to do with race and like the censoring of discussing of reproduction and female sexuality in an anatomical, biological way. And that stuff is obviously really bad because the public isn't getting to see information or perspectives that would have been valuable at that time. But Censorship can also be really productive creatively because as soon as you're limiting something, then people immediately start finding ways to yeah, I mean,
0: get yeah, around it. I am right? not like, anti-Code era. There's like all these amazing movies from the 1940s and stuff where they're doing some very clever stuff with insinuations, you know?
1: Yes. And I think with Lubitsch specifically, I mean, I absolutely love Lubitsch. He is one of the legendary directors of old Hollywood. Billy Wilder completely revered him. He had a sign up in his office after Lubitsch died that said, what would Lubitsch do? That's a great maxim for any director. And there was something that was referred to in Hollywood called the Lubitsch touch, which isn't quite definable, sort of appropriately enough, but just he had this lightness in his movies that nobody else quite had. And I think a good comparison for this movie in terms of talking about the way that Sex is treated is Nanochka, which comes out in I want to say 39, starring Greta Garbo and Melvin Douglas. You have not seen that, right? No, I haven't. I don't think we've ever talked about it. Okay. We should do an episode on that one day. It's awesome. So Greta Garbo stars as a diplomat from the Soviet Union who is sent to Paris to manage the sale of some of these jewels that were like taken from some aristocrat during the Russian Revolution. And she winds up inadvertently falling in love with Melvin Douglas, who is fully a gigolo. Like, it is absolutely (laughs) clear that that is what his job is. And he's involved with the aristocrat in question who is living in Paris now because, of course, she's been exiled from the Soviet Union. And Greta Garbo at first is like, I am extremely Russian and I don't believe in pleasure or capitalism. And Paris is a horrible place. And then of course she's sort of seduced by Paris and she's seduced by Melvin Douglas, but it doesn't, I don't want to give away the ending. Obviously they wind up together, but it doesn't end on a note of being like, capitalism is good actually. Like it's more ambivalent than that. So it's like, there's a moral questions, but it's not like moralizing exactly. And he manages to get across very clearly what is going on sexually between these people in a way that's very provocative, but without being as provocative as he is in this movie, which we will start discussing more fully in a second. And um, I think a lot of it was just about like who the filmmaker was. And if you were really committed, you could get a lot of stuff through. And like, Ninochka is so much about sex and just can't say it And in this film, they actually literally say it, which even for the pre-code era is like quite startling. And I actually think part of what I loved about this movie is that it's definitely not the sexiest movie I've seen from this era, despite having all these incredibly beautiful people in it. It's so straightforward that it almost bypasses that, but that's part of what's kind of was well, because the tone is
0: a comedy. You're emotionally invested in, rather than being an erotic film. It's just like a comedy yes. that acknowledges sex is there.
1: Yeah, which the May West films definitely do acknowledge it. But it's more about like she has lots of like one liners and yeah. I mean, jokes her movies are and, directly you know,
0: riffing on her previous career as a cabaret artist. The initial pre code movies, which were like her best and raunchiest, are just a vehicle for May West to be May West.
1: Yeah, and Marlena Dietrich, who is the other sort of, like, great... I mean, she is the great pre-code actress to me, though she, of course, kept going after. Hers are the movies I think of as being the most sexually charged. And there is still that sense of, like, something that's unconsummated, even if they have actually had sex by that point. (laughs) It's not talked about as explicitly as in this movie, like, in the movie she made with Joseph von Sternberg, she made one with Gary Cooper in fact called Morocco and like that is such a sexy horny movie. That movie is but so it's, good. <laughs> oh my god, it's incredible. But there's something about they can't quite be together and there is this like distance that can't be bridged and that's also happening in this movie because you have this these three people and there's this question of like well who's she going to choose and how are they going to decide who's going to be together and of course the solution is that they all should just be together. But it's played for comedy as opposed to being played in a serious... Like, the sex is always comedic. Like, the woman in this movie is just like, I guess I'll just be with this guy now. Like, I guess I'll stay over at his place tonight. It's
0: not sort of a mysterious, sultry European vibe.
1: Yes. And Lubitsch often sets his movies in this kind of fantasy of Europe, even if there is a specific location. Like, Ninochka is very much in Paris. This is in Paris, too, but it's not real Paris. Like, it's just this kind of not-American place. I mean, it's this really
0: interesting period in earlier Hollywood where simultaneously, like, during the Depression there's this kind of sense of, like, European fantasy people are really interested in and there's loads of kind of cultural crossover because there's loads of people migrating from Europe especially once you get to the 30s and people are migrating for political reasons but like Lubitsch was one of many many directors who came out of the German film industry like he started out as a stage actor and then he was a slapstick comedy silent movie actor he had like some famous character who was apparently very famous in Germany named Mayer no idea who that guy is but like that was his initial career and then he came over to Hollywood and made silent films and then crossed over to talkies which a lot of silent film directors just never managed because it was such a different skill set but he like adapted really really quickly and then found success like until his death in I think the late 40s but yeah it's like this kind of idea of having these European directors who are bringing this international vibe to squarely American audiences. And we have three American actors here. so
1: Yeah, and I think the movie makes such good use of that sense of Americanness that they all have and the idea of an American being abroad. So the film literally starts with them speaking French to each other. And then once they realize that they're all American – they're like oh they like thank hum God. the national
0: Nash- <laughs> them. but in like an ironic way. I mean I want we need to start talking about this movie cuz we we're like we're like a quarter of the way through this podcast already but I just want to introduce these three actors to the audience. Absolutely delightful cast and also at this point all three of these were squarely A-listers. Gary Cooper as we said is the most famous one and I'm sure we'll be talking about his performance at length. <laughs> but he is like famously one of the top actors in Hollywood history, unbelievably talented. Did a huge volume of movies but is kind of particularly known for westerns these days like those are most of his lasting movies and just like stunningly gorgeously handsome very tall and then the two co-stars are Miriam Hopkins and Frederick March both of whom were huge at this point Um, I would say like Frederick March is kind of the second most lasting figure here but um His most famous film now is probably just the original Jekyll and Hyde, which I watched recently. And that is another like shocking pre-code movie, which co-stars Miriam Hopkins, because the original Jekyll and Hyde movie is literally a rape movie where Hyde is a rapist who is like preying sexually on this woman played by Miriam Hopkins, who also starred in one of the more scandalous pre-code films, The Story of Temple Drake which I would not recommend because it's not fun or particularly good, but it was very scandalous because it is about this woman being sexually assaulted. But yeah, like she was this big actress at the time and had a a very successful career. And then the three of them here together are just doing this really light, delightful, well-characterized story, which kind of breaks free of the bounds of typical love triangle stuff, not in the sense that it's a throuple, but more in the sense of just the balance of power between the three characters, because this woman is not kind of characterized as a seductress or a gold digger or whatever. Like, yes, she is being very kind of sexually free, but she's just on equal footing with them. And they are kind of just pals. They're friends as well. Like, as Morgan said, there's this absolutely delightful introductory scene where they're on the train and kind of she goes into a compartment where there's these two guys who are already there, who are friends, and they're both like taking a nap. And then she draws a sketch of them, which is just like a funny little caricature. And then she goes to sleep and they wake up from their nap and they look through her notebook and, you know, find this sketch of her. And it's just like, it's it's almost like silent comedy because it's just like all these visual punchlines. And that's kind of how we find out that she is a commercial Caricature artist who does cartoons for adverts and stuff, like she works for an advertising company. And then they are both like bohemian, poverty stricken artists. So Frederick March plays an unsuccessful playwright, and Gary Cooper plays an unsuccessful early 20th century painter. And the thing that I really find delightful about both of these guys, which felt to me probably very true of Noel Coward's original play, although we don't know, is that neither of them are very good
1: yeah that criterion essay talks about the fact that they're both just like not very talented, <laughs> and the key problem they have is they
0: don't have a good agent, and she becomes their agent.
1: <laughs> yes, and well, she has this great moment where she's like, you know, men are allowed to fall like test drive basically a bunch of different women and then pick which one they like the most, like hats. But I am not allowed to do that. Like, women aren't allowed to do that. So and they're like, so which one of us do you choose? And she's like, both. I'm just gonna, there's gonna, not gonna be any sex. That's when they actually say sex, which is quite shocking. But um, I'm just gonna, like, be your muse. And well, I can't remember what other words she uses, but, like, basically their mom. And, like, manage their careers. And, of course, then they're very motivated because they want to sleep with her like that. And they're living
0: in this just garrett in paris which is i mean it's it's a very obvious looking set this horrible little apartment that's filthy and there's just this great repeating punchline where she's doing all these kind of seductive poses she will like languish on furniture to emotionally manipulate them into paying more attention to her but whenever anyone languishes on the couch this massive plume of dust comes out because everything is like filthy and gary cooper's shirt is constantly tearing because like he can't afford a new shirt it's just it's delightful
1: yeah, they push all the shit on the floor, like literal garbage under the one chair <laughs> and then, like, move it so she can sit somewhere else. And then there's this little pile of rubbish that's just like on the floor. <laughs> like this is not a this is not a nice establishment that they have made for themselves. But I think a huge part of the movie reason the movie is so charming is that the all the actors are great, and they have this dynamic that just really works, like all the different pairings really work. I don't think I'd ever seen Miriam Hopkins in anything, or if I had, she had not. I didn't remember her. And I thought she was so wonderful in this movie. She has this sort of face or expression that felt very modern to me. I don't know what that means exactly, because obviously... Well, she has this
0: really knowing look, I think. And that is not, I've seen like three or four of her films. Um, Her other really famous one is Becky Sharp, which she won or was nominated for an Oscar for. But um, I feel like she must have been a relatively varied actress. Because when I think about a movie she made in the same year as this, Temple Drake, which was the source of a ton of lawsuits because it was too racy. She's playing just like the absolute quivering-lipped ingenue. She's got like a southern accent. She's like weeping all the time. And I watch this and she feels about 10 years older and there's just this sense of perennial amusement. It's just really charming and fun to watch and there's this sense of her kind of not quite dominating but like tricking these two men occasionally in a way that does feel distinct from a lot of the movies in this period like I said where you do have a character who is in some way a gold digger who is the protagonist.
1: Yeah there's something about her eyes it's the look that feels very now to me somehow and I think That character seems clearly to be, like, a problem for these two men. Like, she's just causing difficulty, but not in a way where you're like, oh, she's scheming and is just, like, you know- (laughs) wah <laughs> like, I'm going to ruin these men's lives. She's totally sympathetic, too. It's just that you're watching it being like, this feels like it's going to end badly for everyone. Like, this doesn't seem like this going to Well, is it's because be the, the tone here. is, like,
0: so silly for most of it, which is why it works so well. Because, like, there's the scene after both of these men realize that rather than both having befriended this woman, they're both literally sleeping with her. Because, like, they both sleep with her in quick succession and then return to their apartment and through, like, a series of ridiculous coincidences figure out what's going on. And they both were like, our friendship's over and get like very dramatic and have little tantrums like children. And then they make up really quickly and are sort of hanging out together and making jokes and being like, well, we're just going to promise never to mention her again. Just that woman will refer to her by her surname only. So it's like just the tone of it is so light. And that is also one of the scenes where like it's very clear that the two men should have just kissed.
1: Oh, I mean, it's like so many moments in this movie where you're like, obviously you two are also sleeping together, but that cannot be actually acknowledged. (laughs) And the physicality of them is amazing because the way they're introduced is like,
0: it really does feel like they have been friends for ages and ages. They're very mocking of each other. They've also clearly lived together for ages because their finances are kind of overlapping. You know, you have Gary Cooper making fun of Frederick March's play and being like, God, I don't want to hear any more, anything more about it. But when his play becomes successful, thanks to Miriam Hopkins' interference, he's like so proud of him and so happy of him. And like, just their the way their personalities complement each other is just very well done because you've got Gary Cooper's artist character is like quite serious and temperamental you know he's got the sort of the darker tone and then frederick march is like less so but also very conceited and immature
1: yes i was gonna say they're dumb in different ways they're both both stupid (laughs) yeah and i think the acting styles complement each other really well too i mean they have great chemistry but frederick march is someone I kind of associate more with pre code stuff? Although he absolutely, well, he has a more old fashioned decades. vibe.
0: His biggest roles were pre code, but like as you said, had this really long career. But his acting style feels like I don't know if he was a stage actor, but it feels like he must have been a stage actor. And then Gary Cooper is kind of famous for having this incredible natural charisma, which is kind of the defining trait of a lot of lasting Western icons. Because the whole purpose of those westerns is to have these really naturalistic, masculine physicality situations with these guys.
1: Yeah, so Frederick March was, I think, through his career, or picked it back up at some point in his career, and then was very accomplished on stage. And the thing that his his big later role was the father, I want to say, in The Best Years of Our Lives, which was the big sort of like America processing World War Two movie that made one gajillion dollars the box office in nineteen forty six and is an absolute masterpiece. And I don't think I realized it was him. Oh, is that the thing where there's like several
0: generations of soldiers coming back from war?
1: Yes. Okay. Um it's the one with the there's an actor in it who was severely disabled oh, okay, from yeah. the war, who was like not an actor except for in this movie, and he won an honorary Oscar for it. And I think Frederick March won the actual Oscar for it. And he definitely feels more like naturalistic in that, but that's in like 46, so he would have had time to adjust. But clearly worked in all different genres and was in the industry for a long time, so was capable of sort of adjusting with the Times, which I think is quite interesting. But I do still associate him more with the pre-code stuff. And there's a quote on the... Uh, I didn't do as much reading about him. I have plenty of information about Garrett Cooper to share with the listeners in a moment. But there was some quote on his Wikipedia page about his great skill being conveying like anguish of interior thought and like conflict and distress, which in a sort of like melodramatic film... You get the sense of that happening in this sort of very heightened way, but it's put to great effect in this movie because it's all completely over the top, right? And he deploys it in such a carefully modulated way, but it's a similar sense of like this guy who's just like really tormented, but he understands the comedy of it too. Like I just was really impressed by that and found him very, very funny. And that plays off of Cooper who is totally not like that and instead just has this more like laconic thing going on. They have this like a high anxiety energy and then like a low anxiety energy if that makes that's just like interacting. So my favorite Gary
0: Cooper acting moment in this film is there's a period halfway through where Gary and Miriam actually get together as a couple and Frederick is overseas and then kind of comes back to join them. And this means that, like, Frederick and Gary have been apart for a while. You can tell that, obviously, none of us have memorized these characters' names. Absolutely no idea. Um, <laughs> but, like, uh, Frederick kind of is reunited with the couple. And Gary Cooper's performance suddenly becomes much more macho for, like, one scene. He's, like, patting Frederick marches back and he's like sitting with his legs apart and he's become all jovial and it's like he's suddenly got bro vibes because like he's got a long term girlfriend now and then by the end of the scene all of that physical performance has basically just vanished again because they're like the threesome again so it's like he's having this performance of heterosexuality for one scene
1: (laughs) well and another thing that's pointed out in this essay I keep mentioning which we should say is written by Kim Morgan and again we will link to this is that the character's They obviously look very attractive in a sort of classically beautiful male or female way respectively, but they aren't particularly strongly gendered in the way that they actually behave with each other, right? So like, it's just these three kind of pals hanging out and like the men for most of the movie, with the exception of that scene that you're talking about, it's not that they're acting feminine. They're just not acting Yeah. Broey or macho in a way that feels quite novel, which
0: contrasts so much with so many films at this time. Because like the movies I mentioned that feel very proto-feminist from this period, it is in kind of ways that we would now be like, oh, it's like girl boss vibes, you know? Because it's it's like they're very explicit at like here is a woman who is doing something really powerful, whether that's through her sexuality or by succeeding in the business world or just by outwitting her enemies. You know, it's like a, a kind of girl power narrative. Whereas in this it is just like they are equals, <laughs> you know?
1: <laughs> yes, except that she's smarter than they are. Yes, yes. But not in a like a super like brilliant way. It's just that they yeah. are quite. The only part of dumb. the role
0: here that is gendered is something which we very shamefully have not mentioned yet, which is the fourth character played by Edward Everett Horton, who is from the beginning of the movie, she he is like Miriam's best friend in quotes. He is her boss, and he is positioned himself as her sort of mentor, father figure, friend, which she is sort of begrudgingly accepting, right? So Edward Everhorton is this other person who is very present throughout this era of cinema, and he usually plays something on the scale between gay best friend and clueless buffoon, often a sort of crossover between those two roles so there's several movies he made with Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers the one that like immediately comes to mind is The Gay Divorcee which is what it sounds like where he plays this character who is like blatantly flirting with kind of butlers and stuff But also is kind of portrayed as really sexless, you know, (laughs) because like he is just this like dummy who doesn't understand anything about relationships is kind of his role. And in this, he's this very stuffy figure who's trying to protect Miriam from these two men who he sees as dangerous interlopers. And of course, she finds this completely absurd because she's like, oh, I did invite them to my apartment.
1: Yeah, um, I love Edward Everett Horton, as does, I think, everyone who is an aficionado of this era of film. I think I first saw him or was conscious of first seeing him in Holiday, which I mentioned earlier, in which he's playing a much more sort of warm and humane character than usual. So I'm always quite entertained when I then see him in something where he's acting a bit more arch as he is in this film, but... um, We should watch the
0: 1933 Alice in Wonderland, which features both him and Gary Cooper, along with a slew of other figures from this period. Oh my
1: god, (laughs) I can't even imagine. He's definitely, I mean, the way to interpret his role in this is that he really wants her to be his beard and to help him The way I was interpreting this
0: is that he is definitely gay, but he just doesn't really understand that about himself because he hasn't really (laughs) fully been clued into just the intricacies of sexual desire and relationships because like he is just completely bought into all this stuff that he's presumably been told by some maiden aunt about how society is meant to work and he is mostly fixated on his business as many men were in this era so like he actually has kind of bought into the stuff that everyone else is tacitly just ignoring about society and
1: relationships yes that also definitely works all makes sense in any event he's not a great candidate for No.
0: Also, he's bitch. like he's significantly less hot than the other two as well. This is a boring middle-aged man.
1: Yes, older and less hot, and probably gay. Yes. So the combination <laughs> of those factors is like mm, maybe not so much. I do want to talk more about Gary Cooper though, because I I just have some facts that I must I must share. So I read a book a few years ago called High Noon by Glenn Frankel that is about the making of High Noon, which became like a flashpoint in the HUAC investigations because the screenwriter got blacklisted. The director may have also, I can't remember. I think it was just the screenwriter. I would recommend it as kind of like an intro book for people who are interested in HUAC because it's very accessible. But even if you know a lot, it's still great, very fun. And because Gary Cooper is the star of High Noon, there's, it kind of serves also as like a, like, general biography of him. Obviously, it's not the same as reading a full biography, which would have way more information. But um, I was paging through it before we started recording and um, refamiliarizing myself with some of the details of his life because I find him, like, super, super fascinating as a star because, as you say, he is mostly remembered for Westerns, of which High Noon, of course, is one, probably. I mean, I'm not an expert on the Westerns he made, but that's definitely the one that's most well-regarded now, I would say, and it is a great movie. But um, his background is really fascinating, as is the way that people, I think, kind of talked and still talk about his acting style. So he grew up in Montana. His father was a lawyer and his mother was English. And she was very worried that he and his brother would turn into basically like Hicks growing up in Montana. And so she sent them off to boarding school in England for three years And they were like wearing tuxedos and top hats and like learning how to bow and stuff at this boarding school, which like, so that combination is so fascinating and completely makes sense with his career, right? Because he's in Montana, he learns how to do all the ranching stuff. And then he also gets three years where he's like learning to be a little gentleman. And both of those things he's using as an actor. So like you couldn't have planned that better for what he ultimately winds up doing he goes to college and doesn't graduate and he kind of just like kicks around he wanted to be a cartoonist and then like that didn't work Uh,
0: the giant hand of god pointed down from heaven and said you're too good looking for
1: this (laughs) yeah so he goes to hollywood starts doing stunts and i assume someone is like who is this handsome boy (laughs) we must get him more prominently in front of the camera and so he starts working as an actor And I think the way people have traditionally talked about him is that he just has this sort of, like, natural charisma, and he talks in this sort of, like, low voice, and obviously in the Westerns, like, the style of those movies is that the heroes are quite recessive, and, um... There's a note in the movie about he also had a ton of luck, of course, as everyone has to have to succeed in Hollywood, but, like, he basically was making it right as the transition from silence to talkies was happening, and he has a great voice that sounds normal, and so they were like, great, you're hot and you sound like a real person, like, perfect, but... Glenn Frankel in this book talks about how once he started getting roles as an actor or like the studio started getting interested in him, he like would go to mo- the movies every single day and like study the cinema and be like, okay, what's going on here? And like had a screen test made at his own expense and would like take makeup home and experiment with it because ev- everyone was telling him like, yeah, I know it looks silly, but like on camera, it, like this is what it has to do. Yeah, Frederick to, like, March make- was a
0: big DIY makeup person as well, I think.
1: yeah. And so the idea of him just being this kind of natural man, I think totally works from the perspective of publicity because that's what you want to have that feeling watching him. And he does feel like that, but he completely worked to to construct that like all great stars do with their star images. Right. Not to say that it was all fake. And he like, he really loved doing all the ranching stuff in real life. So it makes sense that he was doing the Westerns, but like he was clearly a very smart and canny guy, which, is why he was so successful along with his talent. And the other thing about him was that he slept with everyone. Like, (laughs) truly everybody. Iconic. Impressive stuff. Yeah. The Wikipedia section of his personal life is so long. The number of people referenced is so vast. (laughs) So he gets married in the early 30s and temporarily separates in the early 50s which is discussed at length in this book because it's when the, this, all this is taking place with Hueek. Because he was having a long-term affair with the actress Patricia Neal. And he like told his wife, and was like, I'm in love with her. And so she was like, get out. So then they're living together for a while. Patricia Neal sleeps with Kirk Douglas at some point and then said that he hit her when he found out, which tragically I think was happening most of the big Hollywood actors at this time. So they eventually break up. There's some other woman who he has a long-term affair with later who's like... He's the only man I've ever loved. And you're just like, what is happening with this guy? Like, and so there is a quote from Arthur Bud Schulberg's book. I think his dad was an executive at Paramount. That is quoted in this book on High Noon that I just have to read out loud. I cannot believe that anyone wrote this down. It's so beyond. For all his quiet speech and diffident ways, Coop might have been the Babe Ruth of the Hollywood Boudoir League. (laughs) It was whispered down the studio corridors that he had the endowments of Hercules and the staying powers of Job. (laughs) I mean, what? So he's like walking around and clearly everyone knows what's going on. He must have been flirting with like every human woman who crossed his line of vision. <laughs> I mean, this sort of thing makes one wonder about the STD situation. <laughs> just <laughs> oh, I have often thought of this. He had an affair with Ingrid Bergman for a while while they were making movies together. He just I'm glad was she had some fun. Incurable. Oh, she sure did. I think more than once. <laughs> so he was quite a character, and. I think his work in romantic comedies has really been undervalued. He's in Ball of Fire with Barbara Stanwyck, which is a Billy Wilder movie. I can't remember if he directed that. He at least wrote it. In which he plays a professor who is just like this stuffy man who doesn't understand sex. And then Barbara Stanwyck is a mob mole and like teaches him the ways of the world. Very fun. And I watched another one with him and Claudette Colbert... I can't remember the title. I watched it recently. And um, he's doing all of this physical comedy that's really, really charming. And I think to really understand his career, you kind of have to have both parts because he wasn't just this dumb lump-on-a-log Western guy. Like, he also had this other side to him. And it's so perfectly used in this movie. And um, I think in that Kim Morgan essay, she's talking about the fact that this casting was quite controversial because Noel Coward's plays are so, like, the dialogue's so fast and quippy, and everyone was like, Gary Cooper, really. But the fact that you have this guy who's kind of just, like, earnest and dumb and pathetic <laughs> in the movie, which he's obviously self aware about doing the acting, adds to the comedy of it.
0: Yeah. I and think. also, the dialogue isn't snappy. Like, there was a, by this point, there are no. early screwballs no. happening, and it's not a screwball vibe. It's a, it's a comedy, you know, as Noah Carrad complained, the dialogue was not the same as the play.
1: No, it's way more dependent on, I mean, there are individual lines that are funny, but it's, I mean, Lubish's style was not particularly screwball in terms of like fast dialogue. It was way more about the camera and charm, pure charm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um. So we're going to talk about the ending now. Go
0: watch the movie if you don't want spoilers. It's, obviously you should see it. Yeah, so like after this tormented yet low-stakes drama of the movie, which is that she can't pick one or the other and there's like points where she's clearly sleeping with both of them, but the conflict between the two men is just so low. Uh, By the end of the movie, both of them are professionally successful, but she feels guilty for screwing the both over. So she accepts edward everett horton's proposal to get married and at this point i was like fucking scandalized because i was like i've seen a lot of movies from this general kind of period of decades and a lot of them do end up with like famously the woman getting shafted in the final reel to teach her a lesson but this happens a full half hour before the end of the film this is only two-thirds of the way through so she marries this unbelievably dull guy implicitly does not sleep with him although you know it's like he's not happy on the morning after the wedding and she is like blatantly and openly pining for these two guys while they're married so she moves into his palatial american mansion where he has clearly terminally boring parties with all these business associates who are all like 20 years older than her and then frederick and gary interrupt one of these parties wearing a pair of beautiful tuxedos And essentially arriving, like, a dance act or something. They're all arriving, like, in unison and, like, march up the stairs to tear her from the horrors of her marriage. And um, it's all, like, highly comedic and delightful. The husband walks in on all three of them in bed together, although, like, they're all fully clothed and stuff, but it's very cute and funny. And the movie literally concludes with her divorcing her husband and going off with the other two men in a car and the final scene is them together in this cab, just, like, happy as a thropple. <laughs> and promising to have a gentleman's agreement not to let sex get in the way. But it's like, we all know what's actually happened here.
1: Yeah, they say they're not going to have sex, they're going to focus on their work, which, like, okay. So the fact that she, the only person she marries in this movie is the guy she divorces, absolutely incredible. Iconic. That is unheard of. Just shocking yeah even in this era like all
0: those gold digger movies always end with the gold digger either getting punished in some cases or more likely having a happy relationship with some man she is either married or is going to marry for money because like they've got to end on a somewhat moral note even if you've got the scandalous stuff first and they were like no fuck morals
1: (laughs) yes and i think there's something about the end of the movie that i really appreciate that's very subtle. And it's not just the end, but the way the whole film is kind of set up. My feeling at the end of the movie is like, this is just going to keep happening. Yeah. Like, this is not And also, like, this the, is not the amount of drama. Solved. Like,
0: the thing is that, like, because this is a, quite a small film, like, there is no sense of them having an extended social circle, but we assume they must. And I assume they're just like a constant state of gossip. Like, all three of them
1: just love drama. <laughs> I mean, I was not thinking about them having an extended social circle because you never see it in no. the movie, and I feel like those two men have no other friends. I don't think that they know anyone. She surely does because she's well. They know people now because one person. of them's got to
0: be a famous playwright and the other one's got to be a famous painter. <laughs>
1: Professional contacts, yeah. yes, but friends, I don't know. It reminded me a bit of the end of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, though that's a much more somber conclusion, where like. You just know that those two people in that movie are going to keep erasing each other from their own minds and then get together again and then erase each other and then get together again. And like, that's the, it's just going to keep happening and happening and happening, right? But there's something optimistic about the end of Eternal Sunshine, right? It's like, well, you just got to keep going and like, that's better than actually them succeeding and permanently obliterating the relationship. And in this, it's kind of like, you know what? This is definitely going to continue to be chaotic and disastrous, but like, Well, let's just continue on anyway. You're enjoying
0: yourselves. No one's getting harmed apart from the gay husband. And like, he's clearly going to get over this in two weeks.
1: Yeah. But there is that sort of shadow of like, it's sort of a happy ending. Like there's something underneath it that's like masquerading as a straightforward happy ending, even though it obviously isn't because straightforward happy endings include two people, not three but you kind of know there's going to be all this trouble. So there's something a little bit ambivalent about it that I appreciate a lot.
0: I mean, the fact that they literally are name-checking the gentleman's agreement is like, because I am a delightful, uplifting person, I'm like, well, they're getting a happy ending. But it's like the text of the movie is a very morbid joke about the fact that none of them can keep it in their pants and this agreement is a farce. And of course it's going to go wrong.
1: (laughs) Yes, absolutely. But it's not in a way where there's you get the sense of the movie being like, these fools, they shouldn't be doing this thing. And it's, it's more definitely just like human...
0: not condemning them morally, as we've said. No. Like, no, no at no, no point does the film say that it's bad to have sex with two men.
1: No, it's more just like these dummies are gonna like get themselves in trouble again, which they certainly, you know, at multiple points of the movie you get that sense. And then they continually do because they have no impulse control. That's pretty much the deal. I mean... Frederick March shows up at the apartment where Miriam Hopkins and Gary Cooper are living. And she basically is just like, well, I guess we're just going to have to sleep together now. <laughs> which like, she's I mean, just like, just like I've had to, to be happen. with like, the
0: same man for
1: eight months. <laughs> it's just, it's I, I can't do that.
0: And there's also, to be clear, there's absolutely no implication that she is interested in anyone else, which I, I find really, I like that a lot. It's like she is only interested in these two guys.
1: Well, because their whole universe yeah. is like this weird little situation. But that's part of the lack of, like, it is a horny movie, but it's also not a horny movie in a funny way. Because it's not like they're having these scenes of passion. It's just, she's just like, well, I guess we're just gonna have sex again. Like, I don't know. (laughs) And I love that because it treats sex as, like, genuinely not a huge deal yeah it's fun it's and kind of harmless. like the
0: scene where it's people kind of getting overtaken by passion they're like pacing they're literally pacing because like gary cooper and Miriam hopkins have been left alone in this apartment while frederick march goes to london to put his play on and they're just like pacing up and down the apartment like we know we've got the agreement we've got to keep by the gentleman's agreement and then it's like blatantly true that as soon as they stop pacing the agreement will be null and void <laughs> The next morning, they're sending off a telegram to Frederick being like, sorry.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like, they're little kids, but they're just little kids who also are having sex a lot, right? Like, Which is in keeping with a lot of stuff about the screwball comedies, too. There's always an element of some sort of, like, those characters being Goofiness. children. But yeah, I found this just, like, so delightful. And also really interesting because, like, the invention of the romantic comedy is always dated to It Happened One Night, and that does share more in common structurally with those later movies, but obviously this is doing many similar things as well, and it's two years earlier, or so or one year earlier. Anyway, it's before that. So in conclusion, this is like the antithesis of what all
0: the code people were trying to do, which is simultaneously eliminate all signs of sex from cinema, And also make the concept of sex seem like it should only be witnessed by, like, married couples aged over 25 and that it's all deeply shameful. Whereas this, you could probably watch as, like, a six-year-old. And, like, there's nothing in it that's, like, erotic. There's also nothing in it that's threatening or dangerous. It's fun and delightful and just, like, has people respecting each other on an equal level, you know?
1: Well, the code people actually were fine with innuendo. Yes. they completely understood that that was going to be happening, and that everyone the backbone was going to of was going every on.
0: comedy from nineteen forty.
1: <laughs> right, they just didn't want it to be explicit because that would be breaking the rules. And yeah. they understood because it's a, it's an economic situation. They didn't want to be censored by the government, yeah. and so they have to play ball. And so they know that the stuff has to be sexy, but it just has to be sexy up to a certain point. Right, And I think this kind of movie is scarier to them because it is way more threatening to Catholic I was literally going to say the, the Catholic League charge. would be calling up, being like, these people are not married in the correct configuration. <laughs> well, right. And because it is so casual, yeah. that's way scarier, actually, than even something like Morocco that's way sexier.
0: Because at least that's a man and a woman feeling tormented about the relationship they are having more or less monogamously, whereas this whole situation, pure chaos. Yeah. And they don't get punished.
1: Correct. And needless to say, it was censored. So this is 33, and the code comes in in 34, and it was already, the second it came out, people were freaking out. And it gets censored immediately, and then doesn't get, I mean, it was buried for like a long time, because... (laughs) nobody wanted that thing anywhere near audiences but happily it is now available for anyone to watch i know it's on the criterion channel in the u.s right now i'm sure it's rentable from wherever but um yeah we highly recommend this film um gabby would you like to share what we will be doing next week with our listeners
0: So next week, we will be discussing a movie which is, for me, hotly anticipated, and for most of America, already the best movie of the year, which is Everything Everywhere All at Once, directed by The Daniels. It stars Michelle Yeoh and an ensemble cast, including the legendary James Hong. I know very little about this film because I've been carefully avoiding spoilers for months, but it does involve the multiverse and parallel dimensions in some capacity, and it's being praised by absolutely everyone for being super fun and interesting and emotionally move- moving and artistically exciting. So yeah, we will be discussing that next week. Now it is finally out in the UK.
1: Yes, and I saw this a couple of weeks ago and I liked it, but I liked it less than I would say most critics. So I will be very curious to see your reaction. I think it will be really interesting to talk about in any event. I think some things better are very good and some things are less good. So, But it is indeed... Very long and full of everything. So there's a lot there's a lot of stuff to get into. And I'm thrilled that you can finally see it so that we can finally talk about it because it has been. It just the like spent weeks and weeks seeing all the like
0: film critics on my Twitter feed talking about how it was the greatest film they'd ever seen, and I'm sitting here like, why is it out here
1: yet? Where is it? I mean, I honestly I think getting a little distance from the hype machine is probably not the worst thing in the world because I think the people who've seen, I know who've seen it more recently, it's like everyone's calmed down a little bit. And I think that that's a perfectly fine way to experience a movie. But um, Michelle Yeoh is obviously just like transcendent in this film, as I'm sure most of our listeners by this point have experienced. So as with Batman, we will be coming to you a couple months late with our take on this movie, but it is still doing super well. And I think it's going to be talked about throughout the year with awards and everything. Love to see an indie
0: movie do numbers.
1: Yes, Absolutely. So that will be next week. Thank you so much again to Jen for requesting this movie on Patreon. It was absolutely a delight to watch and talk about. And if you would like to support us on Patreon slash request an episode of your own or listen to our upcoming mini-sode on the original Top Gun in preparation for Top Gun colon Maverick, you may do that at patreon.com slash Podcast. We also greatly appreciate ratings or reviews. Um, A five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever other podcast service you use is super helpful in terms of visibility. And Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my work at The Daily Dot and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find my work at Bustle. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at MLDavies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverInvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverInvestedPodcast. And our website is OverInvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.